This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Maui for my brother's wedding, and uh, his new mother-in-law, Marsha, came over to me, and uh, she, very nice lady, and she said, you know, I absolutely love your show. I listen all the time. If I can't listen live, I'm listening to the podcast, and my favorite thing about it is Steve Cates. I posted that Steve Cates was going to be on today, and the reaction was instant and unanimous, which is, love it when Dr. Sky comes on. Love it when he's on. He's our favorite guest. Best regular guest you have. And I am forced to agree with everyone, including my new sister-in-law's mother, that uh, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer who has a great deal of extra expertise in astronomy and space, is someone that we are very lucky to have as a regular contributor to this show. And I'm glad we've uh, persuaded him to stay up late with us tonight to analyze what's happening in the night sky. Steve, it's great to talk with you again. Well, good morning, Frank. Always a pleasure to be here on 77 WABC. But first, let me be the first of, my, of not many people, of course, who said this. Congratulations on the ratings and especially a happy Father's Day. Thank you very much on, on both counts. I appreciate that very much. Uh, now, uh, Steve, one of the things that I've noticed as I was driving in this week, and believe me, if you know my inability to drive, the last thing I need is more distractions. But I've been staring at the moon all week. Yes. And it's been it's been beautiful, number one. And yesterday, as I was driving in, it was um, it was reddish. And um, a lot of people have noticed the same thing going on with the moon this week. What's happening with the moon this week? Well, obviously, we go to another one of these beautiful full moons just past this particular one, the beautiful full super strawberry moon. Nothing that the moon would actually have to look like the color of strawberry, but many people who see the moon rise, as I'm sitting here in Phoenix right now, Frank, and I just wanted to mention to the audience, the temperature right here now at a little after 11 p.m. local time is a balmy 99 degrees. How about that? Hmm. As we approach the midnight hour. But the reason I mention that is, as this moon rises, normally when the moon is extremely low to the horizon, we get that what we call the refraction effect, meaning that it seems like it's being seen through, like you're looking through a fish tank. That looks like the illusion is that it looks like the moon is even bigger than it normally is in the sky. But simply due to the fact that thicker atmospheres there is making the moon look that pumpkin orange or even sometimes blood moon red. So this is also a very spectacular moon, though past. We have a series of what we call supermoons throughout 2022. It started in May. The June full moon, of course, the one that we just talked about. And also the July and the August moons will also be considered supermoons because of their proximity to what we call perigee. When the moon is closest to the Earth, we call it perigee. When it's farthest, we call it apogee. But in this case, Frank, from the romantic side, what's more beautiful, right, than looking over the ocean or some old lake and seeing that shimmering moonlight? And especially when it's not beautiful as it moves into our evening and morning sky. I couldn't agree with you more. By the way, if uh, you have questions 
related to space or astronomy for Dr. Sky, a.k.a. Steve Cates. You can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. He's kind enough to join us for the hour. You can also check out his Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com, which is just terrific. Steve, let me ask you about a story that I covered a bit sure. yesterday, which is the news that uh, this this radio telescope uh, that the Chinese control, apparently one of the biggest and most impressive telescopes in the world, they detected a radio signal which they initially thought might be extraterrestrial, but it could also have been interference. And then the government and the government-run uh, media that uh, published this initial report they rushed to delete this within a day. What do we know about what actually happened, number one, and the Chinese reaction to it, number two? Well, interesting news story, Frank, and I just want to do the backstory on this. This particular radio telescope is officially called the 500-meter aperture spherical telescope. That sounds like a lot of words. In Chinese, it's called the Tianyan. What it translates to mean is the sky eye. And yes, yours truly has nothing to do with being a part owner of this thing, but what is it? It's a 1,600-foot dish, like a parabola, that's actually carved inside of a mountain in this area. Now, reports come to us from all over the world through the Chinese news services that, yes, they theoretically have detected some kind of, you know, sort, sort of alien signal. And then, obviously, like you mentioned, all of a sudden, all the news stuff goes away. Well, the real backstory on this is kind of funny. It may be that it's called dispurious radiation. In other words, there might be some terrestrial signals that are actually interfering, and it's a little bit embarrassing here for the Chinese or, that matter, for any of these radio telescope operators. You need to be in an environment that has absolutely no interference. And one story, which is kind of along the same lines as this one with China, is another large radio telescope around the world. The astronomers were getting very excited when they started to see a repetitious signal that they could actually measure and print out, like up, down, up, down, had a rhythm to it. Well, guess what they found out later? It was the microwave oven that somebody down the hall <laughs> had actually started a cup of coffee to warm up a cup of coffee. So we're not going to get too excited yet. Obviously, there's a lot of concern about this. And there have been signals in the past that we've detected that actually, well, one of them was called the wow signal. It was actually from a university here in the United States. And that one still probably is one of the most prolific signals yet unexplained. But to put this one to rest, Frank, for now, at least we're not sure, at least the astronomers are telling us, and the scientists there in China, they may be, it may be involving some kind of other signal interfering with their work. Let's hope they come up with something else. Absolutely. A lot of folks uh, lining up to chat with you. Let's begin with Max in Manhattan. Hello, Max. Thank you for taking my call, guys. Uh, i got two questions hey. here. One, Good morning, Max. Uh, Perigee of the moon. I've seen it in photos where it is, like, say, from Cadiz, Spain, and it is. it seems like it's huge. So my question is, is it really that big, or is this just some sort of Photoshop? And um, another, the second question, follow-up, would be, were the ancient Chaldeans, to this day, the, some of the best astronomers in, in history? Absolutely, Max. Great questions, and good morning to you and the listeners again. When we talk about a perigee moon, what we're seeing is obviously the moon is closest to the Earth in this particular cycle. And this particular moon was some 223,000-odd miles away. And what does that mean in relativistic terms? Is if you were able to drive to the moon, even with these horrible gas prices, kidding, of course, 
if you drove 75 miles an hour, 24 hours a day, even that distance, which is close enough, would still take you about 130 days of continuous driving. The illusion appears, as I mentioned before, the moon has a static diameter. It's obviously in the sky. We're looking at a half a degree of, of separation in the sky. But when it's low to the horizon, it obviously appears like it's larger. But to some, now this goes into a great story, we don't have a lot of time, that it's also an optical illusion. And we can explain that in detail, hopefully, with this program sometime in the future. But the second part of your question about the Chaldeans, absolutely. Some of the most sophisticated astronomers in that whole area of Mesopotamia and throughout the area of Persia, it's amazing, Max and Frank, how they actually were able to calculate future events in astronomy without anything like we call a sophisticated calculator today. Mm. That is something that I think really is so amazing. Studies can continue to reveal, even through Greek and Roman astronomy, something called the Antikythera mechanism, which was found under the ocean, a device that looks like a plate that has smaller little wheels on top of it. Imagine how the heck did they even use a thing like that? How did it work? And it was very accurate in, in light of the fact that we have sophisticated computers. They didn't. Yeah, great, great question, Max. Uh, let me say hello to Al here in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Good morning, Dr. Cates. Good morning, Frank. Good morning, Al. Uh, All right. I have a question. I'm doing okay. You know, about the moon, it was funny is, you know, that where you grew up was here in New York, I believe, Jackson Heights, and yeah. you're in Arizona now. Basically, yeah. it would take you two days to drive, and that's basically the moon size across also. You know, you know you're absolutely really right. Isn't. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, I use that in a lot of my programs out there because obviously we have a lot of friends out here in Arizona from New York. And again, yeah, my, my people question. haven't heard this. Yeah, it's at the diameter. If you were to go from New York to Phoenix, it's like the diameter of the moon. That's right. My question to you is this about the Artemis project. I plan to go back to the moon. Sure. It's been often delayed, and they're planning now. It was originally July or August. If you could tell us a little bit about it and just a little small thing that I wanted to maybe give you guys, Frank and everybody at the station, there's something called NASA.gov, and it says, we are going. So NASA.gov, we are going. And basically what it does is it takes your name as it's going around the moon. You know, you're basically a virtual person on it. So they give you like a little certificate. It's a boarding pass. And all you got to do is go to NASA.gov, we are going. And I put one in your name, Frank. Curtis, everybody at the station, and they ask you for a pin. The pin is 7777. So if you ever want to put that out, it's a nice thing. I even did one for Carmen, uh, uh, Carmine, uh, thank you. son. Thank you. You know, Al, that's amazing. You know, I was promoting that on the shows out here that I do. And you're so right. Oh, I didn't it's know the that. Coolest, no, it's the coolest little thing, Al, because when we do a lot of these programs for children and stuff, you know, they, you see the smile. I mean, it's just amazing. And adults alike. So you're so right, and it's, you're so gracious to be able to talk about that. But let me go on just mentioning a little bit about Artemis. The rocket is obviously the size of a Saturn V moon rocket. It's been moved out from the big vehicle assembly building to do this time an actual fueling test that they have to get right. And the last time they put it out there, they had a few issues. So they put it back into the big VAB. What's the VAB? The Vehicle Assembly Building is actually the, one of the largest buildings in the world. It even has its own weather inside there. You see rockets in there and there's clouds forming toward the top. But what they're hoping to do is to actually do a demonstration. It's actually what they call a live, a live mission. No astronauts on board where they'll launch around the moon, similar to what Apollo 8 did back in 1968. But they're way behind schedule on this, and, and I think there's a lot of cost overruns, not to be negative, 
but it's one of the ways to get to the moon. Maybe not the most uh, inexpensive way, maybe one of the most expensive. Elon Musk and the Starship is obviously something that's giving a lot of, you know, cars, uh, a lot of competition to the moon race. But, Al, that's awesome that you put the names out there like that. And uh, I hope everybody goes and gets their boarding pass. Yeah, thank you. 800-848-WABC, if you have a question for Steve Cates. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Oh, how you doing? Good morning, Bill. I think you're uh, four or five years older than me. I'm 66. Do you remember Comet Kahootek? Oh, do I remember it? I remember it like it was yesterday. We actually did. I think, Frank, you'll get a kick out of Mm. this. And, Bill, I appreciate it. And you'll appreciate it, too. We did a special observing program at a Bergen County shopping center. And we actually gathered about 200 people outside. And we got to show them this little dim smudge in the sky. It was one of the most overbuilt, uh, you know, media events ever, and it's amazing that we even got to see it. That is, a, that is something. Oh, what time Excuse frame me. was that? What year was what year was that about? Ballpark. I, I think it was '73, and I think it was Christmas. If I'm if I'm correct here, I'm going back in the time tunnel here. It was probably around '73 and Christmas time, but it was amazing that we could even see it because many, many people said, oh, you'll never be able to see the comet. But the comet was built up on in every, and particularly in New York, where I live, in every big major television and radio station around there. So we actually got a group of people to see it. And unfortunately, that comet uh, never really got to be super bright, nor did Haley in 1986. And we actually had 5,000 people up at a place called High Point State Park for what we saw for Comet Haley. I think that was one of the largest gatherings of humanity in all of the New York area back in 86 for Haley's Comet, even though it wasn't that bright. Mm. Uh, John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Yes, thank you for taking my call, guys. Um, two quick question here. Um, what is, uh, why does the, the time, our time sequence begin in Greenwich, Greenwich Mean Time, and that followed up with what is the significance of 77 degrees west longitude being God's longitude? Francis Bacon mentioned something about this, and I don't—I forget what, why he chose that. I'm not sure about the 77, to be honest, and that's what I'm always with the audience here. But the thing I'll go and definitely talk about in specifics is the Greenwich Meridian. When we have the Royal Greenwich Observatory at the zero longitude mark, that was set up so a long, long time ago when the, the world was much more of a, you know, naval-type seafaring world. That's right, but was, it, was it chosen arbitrarily, or is it a real zero for a certain reason? Oh, no, it's a zero. It's the zero meridian. It starts where the meridian starts is if you go west and then continue around the Earth. So that's a time marker. So if you're looking at time, in other words, I always say it this way. What the time is in London, England, that would be your universal time. So that's a lot of times it's very confusing in astronomy. Let's say we're talking Eastern Daylight Time and astronomers use UT. Just know that that is the time, whatever the local time is, what's called is Greenwich Meridian. It's the zero mark for longitude. That's what that was set in on purpose. Thank you, John. 800-848-WABC, if you have a question uh, before we break here, I want to ask you about uh, what South Korea is doing. Apparently, they have canceled this asteroid mission. What were they doing? Why did they cancel it? What do we know about what South Korea is up to? Well, it's more about the asteroid called Apophis. And this is the asteroid, Frank, that's going to come close to the Earth within 19,000 miles. And think about that, where we put geosynchronous satellites up at 22,000 or so miles, this big band of satellites in space. The asteroid Apophis, which is actually almost the same size as a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, a little over 1,000 feet in length. What were they trying to do? 
the the, the Korean government, the, their you know, military and space agency, had put plans up to say that they would like to have a mission set up that it could actually trail this particular object and follow it. Very important asteroid to study. But they came to their senses here, and this is very interesting. You have to, you have to you know, at least say, hey, we honor you guys for being so honest about this. They say that now they're looking at it well beyond their technical capabilities. I mean, it sounds embarrassing, but they were going to start this mission for over $300 million, but they're now going to back away from it because of the inability to be able to support it with the kind of technical stuff. But that's a shame because we have another spacecraft that will be actually going into that area, and it's also been utilized before to pull out some asteroid material that's headed toward the Earth. But the truth of the matter is, any and all spacecraft that we could get to help follow this asteroid, a very unusual asteroid, and one, not to alarm people, it's not slated to hit the Earth anytime soon, but in the big scheme of things, remember, in the thousand-year mark and century marks, things change in the world of astronomy, and we talk in big numbers. I know we've talked about this before, but how confident are you in our planet's ability to handle a killer asteroid that's on a collision path with the Earth? Well, I'm not too confident at all. I mean, mm. that's honest. And I, I wonder how if anybody out there who studied this and says to me that they're very confident, I would want to listen and listen and listen. Because here's the problematic thing. If you look at a five to seven kilometer object, allegedly the size of one of the first, the 65 million year, the 65 million year ago, Earth killer, as we call it, over the Yucatan, there's really nothing we can do. I mean, figure this out. Serious but depressing. The DART mission that we're sending to a binary asteroid to be able to try to push away an object from us is still in the early experimental stages. And if you get an object the size of Apophis, which is what? Imagine seeing a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier mm -hmm. coming through the Earth's atmosphere. No thank you. But I don't know, Frank. I always like to be positive, but I'm honest with you in the audience. <laughs> Uh, there's really no there's really no technology that we have that can say, hey, let's push a button and push that sucker. Out of the, yeah, and certainly I find that pretty disconcerting. Uh, it seems like yeah. every month there's a different story of, oh, by the way, tomorrow there's going to be an asteroid or a comet right. making a close call uh, past Earth. And then, uh, but for the grace of God, goes the planet. All right, um, we're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a minute. If you have questions, we're going to try and take uh, as many as we can, one 800 WABC. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to hear more from uh, Steve, you could check out his Doctor Sky blog at ktar dot com. That's k e t a r dot com. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Seventy seven WABC. This is the other side of midnight. We're talking about the moon. We're talking about the stars. We're talking about all sorts of celestial bodies with the go-to guy in that arena, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a lot of expertise in those areas. He's kind enough to come on our show pretty regularly. Steve, uh, we mentioned the moon, uh, which 
was a sight to behold this week. What's in the night sky this weekend or in the coming weeks that people should be on the lookout for? Well, great question, Frank. Let's start off with just a few hours from now, not knowing if the weather's clear. But if it is, at 4.10 a.m. local time, throughout the entire listening area, we're talking now the New York metro area, there's an opportunity to see the Chinese Tiangong Space Station. It'll be moving from the west to the east at about a height of 78 degrees. That's about 4.10 a.m. It'll appear like a fairly bright star, not super bright, but easy to see without a telescope or a pair of binoculars. And then if you miss that particular passage, don't forget the morning of June the 19th, 3.49 a.m., the object will be moving from the west to the east. This time it reaches almost to the zenith overhead at 88 degrees in the sky. And remember, there are three, as the Chinese call them, tikanauts. There's two men and one female on board that whole space station over the next year will start to evolve into something bigger, like a magical Lego you know, project. The Tiangong Space Station one day, as their plans are, the Chinese are very aggressive in space and in low Earth orbit, to build a space station comparable to that of the International Space Station. But Frank, here's something over the next five or six days, if the weather's not good for this morning, let's say, or the next day I talked about for the next passage of Tiangong. If you look into the morning sky right now and have the clearest of skies, you're going to see something unusual, a planetary alignment that hasn't been seen for quite a while. Last 18 years, probably the next 25 years, you won't see it. What are you going to see? Low just before the uh, sunrise, which is around now, around the period of time of around 5.24 a.m. About an hour before that, you would see this little star-like object, maybe 10 degrees high up there. That's Mercury, the innermost planet. Following in an arc, maybe as you're going up toward maybe like 20, 25 degrees from the horizon, you'll see Venus bright planet. We call it the goddess of love and beauty. Then continuing as you turn around toward the south, you'll see Mars, reddish-orange. And just to the right of that by a few degrees is Jupiter. And then following all the way to the south, you would see Saturn. Now what makes this so important is you're seeing five of the major planets of the solar system, but guess what? They're all in the correct distance order that they are in the solar system from the sun. Mercury, then to the right, Venus, as it continues in the right order, then as you go past Earth, obviously we're standing on it, you look at Mars, you look at Jupiter, and then you see Saturn. It's a beautiful sight, and we're seeing it here in Arizona. You probably want to have a little bit of darker skies than, say, downtown, midtown Manhattan, but still, even city dwellers can get to see at least a few of those planets. I think that's beautiful. And how long will that, will that be in place for? How long will folks have that opportunity? Well, they're in the next couple of the next week or so, to be specific. But then here's something interesting: the moon will actually join all of these objects in the sky. On the morning of the 18th, the moon and Saturn will be close together. Then on the 21st, the moon will be near Jupiter, and then the moon and Mars on the 22nd. And then, as we wrap up the month, we'll be able to see the moon near Venus and Mercury by the 26th and 27th. So it's great, especially right now, Frank and, and listeners of the radio show that this is a great time if you're going to be heading out to vacation or at least wherever you can go, staycations even, away from the bright lights. Uh, any chance you have, this is a great time to show not only friends, but the kids love it especially. All right. Uh, Tommy is in Brooklyn. Hello, Tommy. Morning, Frank. Mr. Cates. Um, Good morning. I have a theory. What's the what's the story about, a, a so, about so-called aliens? Perhaps a civilization existed 50,000, 100,000, 500,000, a million, or 600, uh, 65 million years ago before the uh, Yucatan uh, meteorite or whatever 
asteroid that right. destroyed us. Um, you know, perhaps that they, they, they were here and they had tremendous knowledge and technology, and then something happened, you know, and, and then they, and only a few survived with this technology. And, and they, but they're not aliens, they're uh, just uh, earthlings from a different era. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just from, you know, whatever wiped them out, and they cannot, or, you know, they won't expose themselves because they're different. Or, or they're concerned about being exposed to pathogens. I, I think maybe I'm I'm lost here. So as I understand it, Tommy, the the theory is that the that alien sightings that people have had or, or abductions they're not actually extraterrestrial. They're humans from a different era. Is that what you're saying? Perhaps well, not humans, though. Perhaps perhaps just you know, um, you know, other Earthlings. They may be well, be Tommy, different. They know, may be different. Yes, sir. Tommy, you and I are actually brothers on this. Frank, I've talked about this theory before, and it's not just mine. I mean, I can't take credit for it. Here's what, here's a synopsis of what I'm hearing you say, Tommy, and also I'll add this in, and I believe this. Since obviously we couldn't all get along on the planet, obviously, why can't we all get along thing? It eventually occurred that nuclear war or climate change or some other horrible things, asteroidal impacts, affected whatever humans were on the Earth. Where did they go? They went underground. Right. And they melded with I'm the artificial intelligence. Right. They melted I'm, with AI. And AI give, gives us so much in the way. I mean, right now, think about this. You Maybe you've heard of it, Tommy, that even somebody, I think, at Google got kind of reprimanded in a small way because they have this AI thing now that works, and they're releasing all this information that it apparently has the ability of a seven-year-old, and they don't know how to really keep it controlled. But my thinking is this. Whatever humans were left, the melding with the AI – made somehow wow. this particular thing of being able to warp the whole thing called space-time. And maybe those oh, wow. sightings that we're seeing, right on, Tommy, right? Maybe this whole yeah. thing is a, is a, is a conjecture or, or, or bringing together a conjunction of both a hybrid human with artificial intelligence. And those things that we mm-hmm. see called Tic Tacs may be not just machines, but also sentient mm-hmm. type of creatures. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Part human, part, part AI. Yeah, I'm, I'm still considering a lot of different angles to this possibility, and I just wonder what your guys' take is on it. I'm, I mean, that's right, that was fantastic. I love what you just said. Yeah, you know? uh, thank you, uh, Tommy. Pr- appreciate that. Well, Tommy and I ought to take that as a road show. What do you think? <laughs> I love it. You had me captivated. 800-848-WABC. Hey, uh, I know that uh, there is a so, – we've talked a little bit about Solar Cycle 25. For people that haven't heard our previous discussions on that subject, what is Solar Cycle 25 and where are we with respect to the, the that solar cycle? Well, Frank, the next solar cycle, was, of course, we're into now is Solar Cycle 25. It started probably the end of December where the termination point came from 24. So now we're seeing all this increase in solar activity, but something very interesting, and it didn't happen. It doesn't happen much. There was actually a day last week where the sun had no spots at all, but now it's plagued with sunspots and even new X and you know X, X class type flares and all kind of M class flares. And this is fascinating because if you look at the sun's image right now, if you go to places like SpaceWeather.com, you'll notice that the sun is really in the course of a week. The sunspot numbers are so dramatic. But here's something that astronomers are talking about in space scientists that's not so good. They're mapping out in North America the places on Earth that are going to suffer the most, and I don't like the word suffer, indeed, when we have these major solar flares. And they go back to the 1989 gigantic solar eruption 
that happened and caused a massive blackout in Canada, northern Canada. And the reason for that is, is the ground in that part of the nation, and also along the East Coast, is made of a lot of heavy, thick, igneous rock. And that rock does not do good in absorption of solar energy or radiation from these big solar storms. So what happens is the energy simply, for the lack of a better description, can't penetrate mm. the earth heavily. So what's it going to do? It's going to induce a current into the ground. No, it's going to induce it into places like power stations. So not to alarm people, the possible worst places, and I didn't make this stuff up, is that areas of the northeast along the southeast coast and up into Canada have the hardest of bedrock. They're least likely to absorb the energy from the sun. But areas like Arizona, why are we always in a better spot? Not really. It's just that out here, the surface and the ground is a lot different. So those areas could, with the great population densities, suffer more if there's a major catastrophic event like a giant solar mm. flare. That energy will be sucked up into power grids, and what happens? It'll overload. Mm. Wow. 800-848-WABC. Devin is in Westchester. Hello, Devin. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, I have a question, but before I ask it, I just want to say my opinion. The Tic Tacs are the United States government's been following Nikola Tesla's uh, trail of breadcrumbs for years, and they know that uh, there's limitless free energy, and uh, they're just keeping us all on the teat of big oil. But um, my question was, I was wondering what, if anything, you um, think of astrology, and if you have any thoughts on that at all as far as how the planets affect we humans well, it's very interesting, Deb, and I have total respect for astrology. It's just that I'm not primed. I mean, just my personal opinion. I do believe that celestial events do have a forbearance or something on human behavior. And I think if you go back to the classics, if you look at Johannes Kepler, he wrote some amazing books if people get into them. I mean, they're a little complicated with math. But this whole resonance of planetary orbits is fascinating, the whole thing called sacred geometry. So I believe very simply that... As we're born under these different celestial signs, yes, I do believe that there's some sort of effect that happens to people here on the earth. And I go as even far as my time spending with Dr. Edgar Mitchell, who had this body, out-of-body experience on the way to the moon. He talked to me so much, as he's talked to many others, about something called sacred geometry and the Noetic Institute. And he called something, if people look it up, called quantum hologram. And Devin, without a longer explanation... It's just that his belief system is this, that every single thing and particle in the universe does have an effect on each other. So I'm open enough to talk about and listen, not that I'm the scholar on astrology, but I certainly would never turn my back on things that I don't know. All right, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, my guest for the hour is Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out his Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. And uh, you could on the menu, there's one selection for Dr. Sky. A ton of great stories, a lot of stories we end up talking about on this show. So if you're interested uh, in what we're talking about, we're not even scratching the surface here. Be sure to check it out. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your questions in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC.
are short and the nights are long Where they walk and I walk this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, uh, joined for the hour as we talk all things space, stars, sky, moon, sun. If you look up to see it, we're talking about it with the guy that knows more about it than anybody, Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We're answering your questions. Well, one of us is at 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848 Nine two two two. Um, you know, I saw Steve. We were talking about um, the possibility of uh, UAPs earlier. There was an article this week that now NASA is going to be the uh, entity responsible for investigating UAPs. What does this actually mean for people that may see an unidentified flying object? What's going to be different going forward? Well, that NASA has officially decided to get involved in the UFO game, as we call it. I think it's interesting. There's some criticism of this because they're saying that NASA is pretty much empirical science and they don't necessarily want to go down to conspiracy theories and things like that. But I say, why not? Because here we go. When we looked at just the recent hearings in, in the Congress on this, I keep saying it to every program I'm on and my own, and I'll say it again on yours. It's great to hear government officials testifying about what they think is out there, 400 unidentified this or 400 that. Then they go into closed doors, which we'll never know what the heck was. It would like to be the fly on the wall. But let's hear about some real testimony from people. What about the military sightings? And again, we're very well documented called faded giants over places like Maelstrom Air Force Base in which blue lights, something that we don't think is earthly technology, shut down a complete flight of nuclear missiles, Minutemen missiles in the 60s and 70s, things of that type. So I think it's interesting, but here's something else, Frank, that I'm kind of really doing a lot of research on, and I'm, I'm open to ideas from people out there, what they might think. This whole thing about the United States Navy, not just the Tic Tacs seen over the you know Pacific Ocean off the coast of California, but we're seeing more reports about drone swarms over U.S. Navy ships. And now, at least not officially, but we're hearing that it's probably Chinese in nature and that there was actually some sort of a large freighter off the ocean, off the coast of, you know, of the United States, in the ocean, in which this large drone swarm came over to, I use the word, harass United States Navy ships. But we're hearing more that if Taiwan is ever invaded by uh, China, that this might be a giant wave of a drone storm, that they're actually going to use this as a particle or a part of their mm. weapon system here. Very interesting stuff, but it also goes to what the heck are these UAPs. So bottom line, it's nice that NASA's getting involved in the study, but I hope we're going to hear more empirical things and get to hear more testimony, don't you think? Absolutely. From individuals that have seen this. Stuff. Absolutely. 800-848-WABC. Greg is in Ohio. Hello, Greg. Hello, Doctor. How are you? Good morning, Greg. Good to, good to hear you. I have a few questions. Uh, I've been watching this constellation in the fall in the eastern sky, and it looks like a cluster of stars. Is that the Seven Sisters? You're probably looking at the Pleiades, yes. The Pleiades is yeah, referred to as sisters. the Seven Sisters. It's a beautiful little yeah. cluster. It's like if you take – this is for everybody else that's that's listening on this, Greg. If you take your thumb at arm's length – it'll pretty much cover it. That's how small. Some people think they're seeing the Little Dipper, but you're seeing the Pleiades star cluster. Yeah, it's, it's just pretty, pretty neat to see. Uh, the other thing is I'm a ham radio operator. Yes. And uh, the solar flares, I've been talking all over the world. Oh, yeah. 
you get the big boost oh, in the end. Oh, South Africa, yeah, Italy, every day because there's solar flares. I hope it keeps coming. <laughs> well, let me ask you a question because I think, Frank, you'd yeah. appreciate this too and the listeners. On board the space uh-huh. station, one of the uh, you know members on board is Caleb uh, Barron. She's been up there for quite a while. She has a amateur radio license, and mm. her call sign is KI5LAL. But let me ask you, have you ever contacted or talked on uh, two meters uh, to the space station? I'm just curious. I, I, I haven't, uh, but I'd be surprised if uh, there wasn't at least someone in our audience that has. 800-848-WABC if you want to weigh in or if you have a question, 800-848-9222. I did see uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to SpaceX because uh, Elon Musk is such a larger-than-life personality. He makes news on everything, Tesla, SpaceX, whatever. Now CNBC is reporting that the FAA is requiring SpaceX to make environmental adjustments in order to move forward with their Starship program in Texas. What exactly is SpaceX going to have to do? Well, they're going to have to you know, adhere to so many of these different environmental standards. Again, you have propellants. Obviously, I don't think the company intends to dump you know, poisonous chemicals into rivers. But they want to make sure of this because in Boca Chica, as in any other location where you would launch rockets, you want to have some sort of concern, like a big part of concern for the environment. So they're going to have to follow those standards, have the proper licenses to do this. I think that's a pretty easy thing to do. And I think, of course, SpaceX, the kind of company that they are, they are, I'm sure, cooperating. And they'll just have to go further down the line to make sure that, you know, no, stern, no stone is left unturned here. Mm. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Ontario, Canada. Hello, Eddie. Oh, hi, Frank. I love your show. And uh, Mr. Sky, very good. Uh, Mr. Steve Sky, and I love the show. And, uh, yep, in um, 1979, I will uh, do this quickly. 1979, uh, June 25th, 5.45 p.m., out the window here. There's a a lake about a mile away. And, uh, yeah, my sister and I are doing dishes. I look out the window, and there is... Uh, a UFO, uh, unidentified flying object. I know they have a different name now for them, but mm-hmm. it was the second one on the uh, program I looked at on the Internet, on the uh, uh, sheet that has the uh, different uh, types of uh, UFOs, and it was the second one. It was the chrome oh. one. Uh, oh. It was uh, probably uh, about, well, a mile away, uh, 80 stories high. It was probably three-quarters of an acre probably three stories high with the chrome uh, uh, cape. It had a collar around the dome, and it was over the lake. And I don't know if they had problems or uh, if they were taking DNA samples, but I know for a fact they saw it. If anybody in their mind thinks that UFOs don't exist, uh, I saw this definitely, definitely. And I was just wondering about the year 79, uh, and uh, how many UFOs were seen well, in that uh, time frame. Yeah, well, I don't know that, uh, Steve, I don't know that you have that committed to memory, but I, I don't think no. there's anybody that disputes that there are uh, celestial objects or objects in the night sky that people can't identify, including things moving in directions that we right. can't explain. I think the big question mark is what are these objects? And there seems to be exactly. varying schools of thought as to what they are. Exactly, and Eddie, you're, you're citing... It absolutely knocks it out of the park. And that's the whole point that I'm trying to say to everybody listening. 
we want to hear more about the individual testimony of individuals on this. It shouldn't be just a certain group of people. And yet thousands of people, I'm sure, will come forth because they're seeing something. I mean, I don't think it's just a psychological manifestation in the brain. Obviously, these are really uh, objects that are being seen, whether they be fireballs, whether they be these Tic Tacs, and we don't know. But the only way why we're ever going to get to resolve this kind of thing is just to do as much research as we can and be open to people's testimony and try to get as many verifiable, you know, all the data fields on this and collect as much information. Somebody knows the answer to this, obviously, and I never understood, Frank, I'm sure many people would agree, why the heck are we not being told the truth on this? Oh, no, it's I, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go panic and, and and take an overdose of pills or something because I'm panicked and right. I can't get up. I want to hear the truth, just yeah. like everyone. No, that's what I've been saying. A uh, hundred years ago, something that was considered science fiction and was heavily disputed, we now know it's fact, was the idea of black holes. And now sure. astronomers have discovered what they think could be a black hole roaming the Milky Way galaxy. Now that discovery of this possible black hole might allow researchers to pin down exactly how many of these objects may exist out there in our galaxy and how far away they might be. What do we know about uh, this particular black hole? Well, we don't know that much. I mean, what we know is that it's something out there that at least astronomers believe has some sort of mobility to it. Now, that's kind of an alarming thing. Because black holes, even as Stephen Hawking said, and this is something I don't like the exact quote, but he said that these black holes pop in and out of the universe. So why and how would they do that? But the problematic thing is if we're seeing one that apparently is moving through space, let's hope and pray to the almighty powers that we don't wind up having miniature black holes invade the solar system anytime soon because of the problematic thing of what black holes do. So it's interesting what they are. What are they? They're the leftover creation of the aftermath of, let's say, a supersized star collapse where nothing, light, heat, and all forms of energy were obviously taught that does not escape from this. But this is like one of the first times we're actually hearing that these particular objects called black holes, no matter how big or small, may be mobile and moving throughout the universe. That's pretty... Uh, Pretty unnerving, if you want to know. Uh, that, that's for sure. Uh, if you have questions, give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. Speaking of stars, I think a lot of our listeners have heard the term earthquake before. They may not have heard the term starquake, but there are these new sounds that have been recorded of starquakes all across our galaxy. What is a starquake, and how did we get this data? Got this data from spacecraft, interestingly enough, Frank. Many people think that just the James Webb Telescope is out a million or so miles from the Earth. But since 2013, the Gaia space flare, spacecraft itself have been not only imaging objects in space, but they've also been helping us calculate exact distances and exact locations in space, like a three-dimensional map. But what we're finding out here is, this is very interesting. On certain type of stars, whether they be relatively small stars, we find out that as the star is seething in and out you know, with its change of energy and, and doing its fusion thing, something happens on the surface of the star. It's maybe it may like a crust that appears on the star. I'm keeping it really simple. And through some magnetic effects that happen, powerful magnetic things like pulsars, these, these things called magnetars, these are stars that have so much magnetic energy that they literally just rock the surface of the star as if it were like skin, but in the same hmm. sense of like an earth that has an earthquake, 
the entire uh, system of the of the basic star starts to vibrate and out of that comes tremendous amounts of gamma radiation and energy that's off the charts nobody really understands the dynamics but gaia has helped identify the problem is i mean not the problem but the fact is star quakes are more common in the universe than we previously thought. Uh, Is Gaia getting us any other interesting information and interesting data about the universe beyond these starquakes? Well, actually closer to home, Frank. It's actually helping us identify more asteroidal bodies. And since we were talking about before, the sad answer to a great question, what do we do? What the heck do we do if an impending object is headed toward the Earth? At least this way, maybe we can track that there are more billiard balls on the table than we thought. Let's just hope that we stay out of the harm's way. But that's, a, we're, that's wishful thinking right now. But Gaia is helping us to identify mm. many more asteroids that haven't been seen before in the near solar system. Uh, there, is a, um, it, there is a whole new field that seems to be exploding of extra X-ray astronomy. And it's been described that this could open up uh, a whole new window into the universe. What, what, what are the possibilities for this field of X-ray astronomy? What could we be seeing in a year, two years, five years, 20 years from now? Well, X-ray astronomy is interesting. It's stuff that you can't see. And when we all think in the proverbial sense of getting an X-ray when we need a chest X-ray, or if we break our leg, God forbid, this is going to help us identify where the problem or the break is. But in the world of astronomy, this is a whole area that obviously the human eye can't see. So it will help us to understand more about how this universe came about, what are some of the residual effects of this so-called Big Bang explosion, which I call the Big Expansion, 13.8 billion years ago. It will help us understand how energy in the universe is transmuted, meaning how does it move from one energy state to another. And X-ray astronomy is fascinating. It obviously is something that uh, we're just at the early infancy stage of studying that with new spacecraft and new probes. Mm. Anything else that you're excited about as a curious person and as a even as an earthbound space explorer of what we could be looking forward to in the years to come? Well, what I'm fascinated by, Frank, is this whole concept of how the universe was created. Again, not to attack religion, not to attack philosophy, but just to go with what the science tells us at this point in time. Allegedly, as we say, the universe expanded 13.8 billion years ago. At about 380,000 years after that expansion, something actually literally fried the entire background called the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's like a signature of this big frying event that took place in the universe. This is the time of the universe when there was inflation. Now, I know a lot of people will say, hey, wait a minute, Dr. Sky. Inflation is... Yeah, keep the Federal Reserve out of this. Exactly. And and the universe hasn't raised its interest rate, at (laughs) least uh, at this point. But no, this is fascinating. I'm fascinated about where this whole evolution of the universe goes. And what's really fascinating to me in every public program I can do and sharing it on your show is the two concepts of dark energy and dark matter, two of the most problematic things in the universe that we do not understand. The, the story of, of dark matter, which binds the universe together, as I've said many times, Einstein called it spooky action at a distance, even in his great mind with general and special theories of relativity. He never could understand what this is. We think we know that it's a binding source of some kind of thing, a component in gravity. And then the strangest one of all is the whole thing with, as we see dark matter, dark energy moving out as things go faster away, from, as things move out in the universe, I should say, farther. They don't slow down. They go faster. And the showstopper of all, the concept of quantum entanglement, 
where if you snapped your finger, let's say, on one side of the universe, or if switch was, you know, was clicked, instantaneously that also happens in the quantum mm. physics world on the other side of the universe. What's the mechanism that does the transportation? Is it something that's faster than the speed of light? Nobody knows. That's wild. That's heavy stuff. I'm getting a lot of people emailing and uh, sending me messages on Facebook to ask you. Michael asks, can you please ask Dr. Sky about Planet X and where it is right now? The last I heard, it's under the south pole of the sun and coming in. Thank you. Uh, re- refresh our recollection, if you, if you would. When people refer to Planet X, what is Planet X? Well, this is interesting. Percival Lowell, when he came to Arizona, his search was for something called Planet X meaning there was something tugging on the gravity of both Uranus and Neptune. It was later discovered by my mentor, Dr. Tombaugh, here in Arizona back in 1930. But the subject of Planet X is something even stranger. There's two different things. There's one called Planet X, and there's one called Planet Nine. Planet X might be an object which is sometimes referred to as an object called Nibiru. This could be an errant planetary object, maybe another sun, that comes in every so many billion years into the vicinity of the sun and changes the order of the planets and gravitationally changes things. No definitive proof. I know a lot of listeners may take me to task. But Michael Brown at Caltech has been calculating that there's something else out in the solar system that's way out there, well beyond Pluto and the Kuiper Belt objects called Planet Nine. And it may be a fairly sizable planetary object Get a load of this, has an orbit that goes around the sun not once every few hundred years, but maybe 25,000 years, and it's yet to be detected. That's why we have these giant big telescopes like Gaia, space telescopes, and others. Hopefully, we'll get an answer. It's pretty simple to me, Frank, that there's probably many, many planetary objects that are obviously still lurking out in the sun, beyond the sun. And yet we just have to, you know, step it up to help uh, identify. Uh, This is another West Coast former New Yorker listening to us. He writes, a few weeks ago, I saw a YouTube video by one of those guys who live stream walks in New York City. They are uh, the next best thing to being there. And one of the videos was about a phenomenon called Manhattan Henge. It seems to be a big thing now, but I'd never heard of it, possibly because it only became a big thing in recent years. The term was coined by Neil deGrasse Tyson in 1997 and may have taken some years to catch on. Uh, Have you heard of it? And what is what do you have to add about Manhattan Henge? Well, I'm envious. Being a fellow New Yorker myself, I remember looking through the caverns of the great buildings of New York. So this Manhattan Henge is when you say, let's say, the sun, where it'll go, let's say, along the east streets, will actually go and set right down in the middle of that street in the canyons of the buildings. But even cooler than that is when the moon will appear at certain times. It's all about doing some calculations. But I've seen so many pictures of this, and some really good photographers in the city have gotten it. Let's say we're looking at 34th Street, and we're looking all the way out to the uh, Hudson River. You get to see the moon as if it's literally above the taxi cabs and above the cars. And every so often the sun will come through those canyons, kind of reminiscent to what Stonehenge would be right around this time. By the way, Frank, the longest day of the year is just around the corner. On the 21st, we know the summer solstice. The sun apparently on that day will rise at 524 a.m. But the summer solstice begins at 513 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on the 21st. And guess what? We're getting the longest daylight in New York right now. The longest daylight is 15 hours and 5 minutes 
very interesting uh, question. That you, you, you know, it is inter- it is a very interesting because I usually leave the radio station here around 530 and I'm accustomed to driving home in the dark. And right. I took I took note yesterday that as I was driving home, it was bright out. It was it was daylight, oh, which yeah. is which is very rare. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll it'll, it, that'll be the case for at least uh, at least a little while. A few days. Like I said, 524 a.m. was sunrise. 830 p.m. is sunset. Some of the longest durations, 15 hours and five minutes. And again, that whole Stonehenge, excuse me, that Manhattan Hinge, that's really cool. And people should take a look at that because that's astronomy that city dwellers can do where other places around the country. Uh, they don't get a chance to see that through the great mountains and caverns of, of buildings in places like New York. Yeah, that is uh, for sure. Talking with Dr. Sky again, you can check out his blog at KTAR.com. You're interested in media uh, showers. You're interested in things to watch in the night sky. It's, uh, it's, all, uh, it's all out there. Just So just to sum up, the thing that's, uh, uh, that, that's worth watching in the night sky this weekend and in the coming weeks is this upcoming planetary alignment, right? Absolutely. It starts with Mercury. It ends with uh, the planet Saturn. But if you look into the morning sky, about an hour before sunrise, if you have a clear sky, you'll see Mercury, Venus, lined up a little bit to the right of that as you go up in the sky about 20 degrees in an arc. You'll then see Mars. You'll see Jupiter and Saturn. Mm. And then the moon starts to get into that area, making it even more fun. And the only thing missing would be the Earth, but you're standing on it. And the other two planets that are still considered major, Uranus and Neptune, they're not visible to the naked eye. Steve, uh, the uh, time, the hour always flies by whenever we're together. I want to encourage every. If people have questions, by the way, how can they reach you? Well, go ahead and send an email. I love the email. It's just drskyshow at gmail.com, show at gmail.com. And, of course, at ktar.com, we have our blog. We have our podcast, and I do appreciate, Frank, being part of this radio station with you. Congratulations on the ratings, and a happy Father's Day. Thank you. And give a hug to little Carmine. Thank you, Steve. I certainly will, and uh, appreciate you coming on and always being so generous with your time at what I know is a tough hour. Dr. Sky, Steve K. check him out, KTAR.com. We'll continue straight ahead.